Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening's event is part of the Intermarium Lecture Series sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. This evening, we'll be hearing from Mr. Andrew Kapchuk. Mr. Kavchuk was born in Montreal. He studied political science and law. He spent his career in the Canadian Federal Civil Service, mostly working in policy units with the Departments of Revenue, Industry, and International Trade. Since retiring, he has pursued his hobbies of reading and writing about history. Mr. Kavchuk has written and published several books that are available on Amazon, including Remembering Gazanko, The Struggle to Honor a Cold War Hero, and The Katyn Forest Massacre, an annotated bibliography of books in English. He currently lives in Ottawa, Canada. Mr. Kavchuk, welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Hannah. I'd like to thank the uh, Institute of World Politics for giving me the honor and privilege of speaking to you today. And I'd like to specifically thank uh, Professor Marek Hodakiewicz for the invitation. I'd also like to speak uh, or thank uh, Katie Stofley and uh, Hannah McGann, who we just heard, who also helped make this event possible. So my, my topic for discussion today is this book that I recently wrote and published titled The Catton Forest Massacre, an Annotated Bibliography of Books in English. It's about uh, 238 pages long. It's available on Amazon. And uh, it's, I hope, a text that will be of use for future students of the Cats and Forest Massacre and something that may in the future be subsequently updated by future historians. So first, what I'd like to do is give you an idea of uh, what prompted me to write the book and how the book came about. And then I'll provide an overview of the book and its context. So my basic interest stemmed from a personal family uh, history my grandfather, Stanislav Kafchak, and this is a picture of him from uh, just before uh, the war. Uh, he fought in World War I. He uh, fought as an officer in the Polish-Bolshevik War of 1919-1920. Uh, between the wars, he was a uh, lawyer in Warsaw, mobilized. Uh, on the eve of uh, World War II as an officer. Uh, and uh, well, at the beginning of the war, he uh, fought in the battle of, on the, the defense of Zesch on the Bug River, was captured by the Soviets. And in uh, the end of 1939, my, my grandmother and, and my, my father received this postcard. Um, it's uh, a postcard that has um, imprinted on it the uh, emblem of the hammer and sickle and uh, uh, Soviet or uh, Russian lettering 
And I found it in our family sort of files, and I immediately recognized from the date, uh, November 30th, 1939, that this was the first of two postcards my grandfather sent from the Starobielsk camp to his wife. The second one, unfortunately, I uh, was unable to, to, to find. But my father tells me that you know after this first one was received and they knew that my grandfather was alive and that he was at the Starobielsk camp, the second card they received apparently in early 1940 said that he had received nothing yet, no correspondence from his wife. And um, they, whatever was sent obviously wasn't being delivered. And then eventually uh, the correspondence came back with a note saying the addressee had left. So when I was a child, my father made it very clear to me that Katzen had affected our family. And my father had several books um, about uh, Katzen at home, but as a youngster, um, I, I didn't find reading those books particularly enjoyable. Uh, I didn't understand much of the history and all the references to persons, places, and events. And uh, I figured one of these days uh, I'll, I'll uh, delve into it. And a couple of years ago, I came across this book. This was a book written by Zdzisław Jagodzinski. It's the Katyn Bibliography. Now, it's a pretty thin one here. Uh, it was first published in 1976. It was 16 pages. This edition is the 1982 edition, which is 48 pages. And Zdzisław Lebrzezinski was a Pole who uh, survived deportation to the Soviet Union, ended up in London after the war, became a librarian. And um, this bibliography lists many of the books that had been published about Katyn, but it's not annotated, and it's also books in multiple languages. So the thing is, there's not a lot of English books, but there's also a lot of Polish, German, uh, some Italian, some Dutch, uh, French. And this sort of prompted me to think that maybe the time had come 38 years later to update this with an annotation strictly about books in English. Now, a couple of years ago, I, I finally got down to reading the books that my father had on our uh, family bookshelf, and I started buying some more, which was, I was very lucky with this internet these days. It's possible to get out, out of print books through used bookstores anywhere on the planet. And eventually I collected over uh, 38 books that I determined were contributing enough to the Katyn story that they're worth documenting. So what I'd like to do now is uh, describe the book and the contents. So the first chapter prov provides the reader with an overview history of the Katyn Forest Massacre. And I think this is necessary because although many of the older generation of Poles um, are thoroughly familiar with it, uh, it's obvious that the younger generation is sometimes uh, uh, a little missing some of the, some of the facts, and of course, um, those who aren't Poles very very rarely are in fact familiar with the details. So the discussion, the 
purpose of a, a general overview there is to sort of set the context to help understand the meaning and the contribution that the subsequent books that are discussed contribute. Uh, then I have a short chapter where I try to assess the nature of the literature overall and the various groupings under which one can, um, you know, uh, assemble various types of, of books that are, have been written about Kaki. And then uh, I proceed with a chapter by chapter discussion. They're all short chapters with part two parts. The first trying to uh, provide some background about the authors and the second part being a sort of a, a summary um, with some anecdotes or stories from, from the, the book and discussion of what, what it contributes to the overall knowledge of the Captain Forest Massacre. So with that in mind, I'd like to, to uh, sort of replicate the book in this, in this webinar. Um, and obviously in well, with the 45 minutes or so that I have uh, remaining, I'll have to really cut things short. And it occurred to me that this is gonna be like a, a sort of a, a, a version of uh, speed dating with uh, a review of books. And given the, uh, the increased uh, prevalence of attention deficit disorder in our society, it occurred to me that that would probably be an appealing format for, for, for a few potential viewers. So uh, very quickly then, the Captain Forest Massacre, what happened? In September of 1939, the, the Germans invaded Poland from the West. The Soviet, pursuant to the August 23rd agreement they had with the, with the Nazis, invaded from the East and partitioned Poland between them according to the spheres of influence that they had previously agreed upon. The Soviets ended up, in fact, occupying more Polish territory than the Nazis did. When the, Germ the Soviets invaded uh, Eastern Poland, they had captured approximately 250,000 Polish soldiers. They segregated 10,000 Polish officers and had them interned in several camps. One was Starobielsk, which was the one where my grandfather was. Another one was, uh, and by the way, Starobielsk is in what is now in Ukraine, not far from Kharkov. The second one was Kozelsk in Russia, not far from Smolensk. And the third, which is where they were mostly border guards and policemen and landowners, was Ostashkov, which was near Kalinin, which is known today as Tver. So the 10,000 Polish officers uh, were at Starobielsk and Kozielsk, but uh, all in all, there were 15,000 at these three camps. And uh, they weren't allowed at first to write to their families, but then they were. Like I said, my family got two cards. But the, one of the benefits of sending these cards, allowing the inmates to send cards to their families was that the NKVD was able to then get the addresses of the families. And the Soviets between 1939 and 1941 undertook four waves of mass under midnight arrests and deportations of Poles 
to Kazakhstan and Siberia for purposes of hard labor. And the correspondence with the addresses of the families provided the Soviets with the addresses where they could arrest these families. And I think these deportations are part and parcel of the whole Kremlin approach and policies with regard to dealing with the Polish population. And I don't think that one can really uh, divide or separate the Catherine affair as a, a, a sort of a step standalone of, of event. It, it was all interconnected. So my family was lucky in the sense that they were not arrested and deported to Siberia because they had, ironically, the good fortune of living in the Nazi zone of occupation. Um, while the inmates were at the camps, of course, they were interrogated. And, and in early March, 1940, NKVD chief Beria provided a memo to Stalin and the Politburo indicating that these uh, Polish officers were all uh, anti-Soviet and uh, he recommended shooting. The Politburo agreed. The uh, memo was signed by, by Stalin and his colleagues. And in April and in May of 1940, uh, all of these Polish officers, as well as prisoners from um, various prisons in Western Belarus and Western Ukraine were executed. Um, in the three camps, they were all taken to nearby buildings of the NKVD and executed or at the Catherine Forest, near the forest, and then their bodies were dumped in mass graves. Those from Starobielsk murdered in Kharkov and buried in mass graves outside of the city of Piaritsky. Those from Kozielsk were buried in the Catherine Forest, and those from uh, were buried in Midnoye. So uh, there were, however, 400 in total from the three camps, Polish officers and prisoners who were not executed. These were um, saved, effectively becoming survivors who were sent to another camp called Gryazowiec. The question of why is still seems to be a little bit open to debate. It's known that at least 50 of them were communists, and it's suspected that the rest were perceived by the Soviets as being potentially useful, um, although many of them turned out to be just as patriotic as their comrades who had been executed. So everything changed, of course, in June 22nd, 1941, when the Germans unleashed Operation Barbarossa and invaded the Soviet Union. Suddenly, we were in the same camp with the Soviets in a common struggle against Hitler. The uh, Polish government in exile signed an agreement with the Pol uh, Soviet ambassador, which became the Sikorsky-Mayski Agreement, which uh, provided for the release of Polish prisoners uh, uh, in the Soviet Union under the guise of an ag amnesty, and it provided for the creation of a Polish army on Soviet territory under the leadership of General Anders. That army ended up leaving the Soviet Union in 1942 uh, to Persia and eventually went on to uh, the, Palestine and achieving glory in the Battle of Monte Cassino in 1944 in Italy. Um, but while they were um, 
forming in the, in the Soviet Union in late 1941, the question was, well, where are the officers? And all of their requests to the Soviets had been uh, dodged. And uh, eventually, in April of 43, um, their suspicions were borne out with the Nazi discovery in the Canton Forest of a mass grave containing some 4,400 4, 4, um, corpses of the prisoners who were held at the Kozielsk camp. So the Germans immediately had a medal commission of their own hosting the place. They brought in an international uh, group uh, to uh, carry out uh, uh, exhumations and uh, autopsies to try to determine when were these soldiers killed. And uh, the Polish Red Cross also uh, was participating in going through the, the pockets of the um, uniforms to try to identify the corpses. At the time, the Poles requested from the Polish government in exile the uh, International Red Cross to investigate the Soviets refused to let them on Soviet territory for purposes of such an investigation. And Stalin used that event as a pretext to break off relations with the Polish government in exile. And this is a real good example of realpolitik, so to speak, uh, which is the system by which you know, politics and principles based on practical rather than moral and, or ideological considerations um, you know, govern behavior. Uh, here, the British and the Americans essentially saw the Soviets as more useful than the Poles in terms of the fight against Hitler. And so Polish concerns were largely marginalized. Now, in late 1943, the Soviets took over the Katyn region. They always insisted at that, from the discovery of the graves that the Nazis had committed this crime, they set up their own fraudulent commission called the Budenko Commission that reported in June, January of 1944 saying that these Poles had been killed by the Nazis in the fall of 1941, which of course was formally the, the Soviet cat and uh, lie that persisted until 1990. Uh, in the 1946 Nuremberg war crimes trials, the Soviets initially included in the charges against the Germans, the um, commission of the, the war crime at Katyn. But after some testimony, they uh, dropped it. It became kind of obvious that they couldn't uh, prove that it was a German crime. So the Nuremberg trial was ended without any determination or declaration as to guilt with regard to the Katyn crime. Um, the Soviets finally in 1990 uh, Gorbachev admitted that there was a crime committed by the NKVD. And in 1992, Russian President Yeltsin released the copy of the um, execution order signed by Stalin himself. The Soviets and the Russians had a, you know, initiated some investigations, but these went nowhere. And um, in 2000, Polish military cemeteries were opened at the free mass grave sites. So that's basically, in a nutshell, the history of the Katyn Forest Massacre. And the literature overview that I provide groups the literature into these um, 
categories. The first is overview studies that had been published before 1990 in the Russian and the Soviet admission of guilt, and then those that were published after. There's also a section dealing with political memoirs by politicians, diplomats, and generals, and a section dealing with memoirs of the former prisoners, a section dealing with witnesses to the exhumations, both the one done by the Germans and the Soviets. Then one section dealing with aerial photography, another with the experiences of the families, and one uh, unique work of popular history, and uh, a final grouping that I, I sort of make a, a miscellaneous interpretations, explanations, and remembrance. And one thing I wanted to, to say is that there are several books in English uh, that are distortions or, in fact, complete denials and falsifications. I don't make any reference to any of these books in my book. Uh, I've decided also not to have any uh, reference to any fiction. This book is entirely nonfiction. So, in terms of the overview of the books themselves, this I'm going to have to speed up a little bit, and I might end up dropping the last section if I go into overtime. First off the bat, there is 1951, the first overview book published about the history of the Katyn, Katyn massacre is Yusuf Machskevich's uh, The Katyn Wood Murder. Now, this, he was, in fact, a journalist who had been uh, sent by the uh, uh, Germans uh, to the Katyn site during their ex exhumations and was expected to engage in, in you know, anti-Bolshevik Nazi propaganda afterwards. And this book that he, he wrote in, that was published in, in, in first in, in uh, I think it was German in 1949 out of Switzerland. And now this English version um, basically uh, reviewed all of the evidence that had been gathered and was available at that time. And there's a couple of points that are made and repeated throughout the other books that I'm going to refer to in a, in a few moments. Um, some of the evidence was that, first of all, the Soviet pronouncements were always inconsistent, you know, from the time that the, the, the uh, prisoners disappeared, and then after the Germans uh, discovered Katyn and so on, the stories about what happened to them were, were always changing, and so there was something suspicious about their behavior. The fact that all correspondents to all family members stopped at the same time after March of 19, 1940. The documentation on the bodies that were exhumed all stopped at the same time in, in you know, April of 1940. Um, the soldiers were wearing cold weather clothing, which suggested that they were buried in colder spring weather rather than late summer. Weather. There were bayonet marks on the bodies from, um, you know, the, the Soviets sometimes uh, assumed those, all of them were shot, executed by being shot in the back of the head. However, some had these bayonet marks suggesting that there was a struggle, and the Soviet bayonets had a four-corner edge, 
as opposed to the German flat uh, uh, blade. Then the medical specialist determined that the degree of calcification inside the skulls could have only happened after three years, not uh, two years as, uh, as the, uh, the German and the Soviets were, were insisting. Um, there were no insects in the graves, suggesting it was, they were buried in colder weather. Hands were tied with rope, and the rope was Russian rope. And then on top of it all, there were younger trees that were planted over the mass graves, as opposed to the trees beyond and around the graves. So these were some of the cumulative facts that always pointed to guilt towards the Soviets. Now, one of the things that Manskevich says in his book, which is fascinating, is that newspapers were extremely useful to the uh, soldiers. Besides being able to fold them to, you know, wrap things, they could roll newspaper uh, uh, cigarettes with them, or they could use them as uh, additional insulation in their socks and so on. And he said that at the exhumation, there were newspapers all over the place, but none of them were past March of 1940. And he said, and he quotes, you know, which means there can be no doubt because if they were in 19, they were buried in 1941, why would they still have newspapers from over a year earlier? Now, his book doesn't have any concluding cha chapter. Um, he leaves it to the reader to draw their own conclusion. Now, the next thing is the Madden Commission, Madden Committee. This was a committee of the um, Congress that was formed in 1951, and it uh, held uh, hearings in Washington, Chicago, London, Berlin, Frankfurt, Naples. Uh, they heard over 103 witnesses. This was a truly comprehensive investigation, which resulted in some 2,679 pages in seven volumes of information about Katyn. Now, those are in, in libraries, but fortunately, there's this one organization called Classic Reprint Series, which is reprinting some of these, these volumes. And so it's possible to get some of this, which is extremely, um, uh, you know, detailed, useful, and probably the most comprehensive study of its nature that had ever been done. Now, it concluded in an interim report that beyond any doubt, the NKVD was responsible for the crime. But the final report had something interesting, which I'll just read here. The final report said, in submitting this final report to the House of Representatives, this committee has come to the conclusion that in those fateful days nearing the end of the Second World War, there unfortunately existed in high governmental and military circles a strange psychosis that military necessity required the sacrifice of loyal allies and our own principles in order to keep Soviet Russia from making a separate peace with the Nazis. For reasons less clear to this committee, this psychosis continued even after the conclusion of the war. So this was a, uh, another one of these important documents. The third uh, in this category 
is this classic by Janusz Zawodny, which was published in 1962. It's a scholarly assessment of the situation. Um, he reviews uh, all of the evidence available and the positions of all the governments involved to that period. And he concludes by rejecting the idea that the Nazis committed the crime and comes to the conclusion that the NKVD did it in accordance with direction from the central government. Now, the next thing that, that's uh, crucial in this category is this 1965 English book titled The Crime of Patent, Facts and Documents. Now, it's not indicating who the author is, but it is published by the Polish Cultural Foundation in London. Now, in fact, this, this book lists all of the available relevant information and data and evidence about what happened at Katyn, but it, stemmed, it has a very interesting history because the Anders uh, army, when it was formed, created a documentation center, and they tried to accumulate all the information possible about what happened. And out of that documentation center, they published a number of booklets, but there were also a number of very important reports that came out. One was this one. I've got this uh, electronic one that I, I printed off here by, uh, it was compiled by Viktor Sudanitsky. It's called Facts and Documents Concerning Polish Prisoners of War Captured by the USSR During the 1939 Campaign. But it's specifically listed as being for private circulation only. This was published in 1946, and it was in English. A Polish version was um, put together under a, a team led by Zdzisław Stahl, which was published in 1948. And it's this translation of that document that was published in 1965. It's got a introduction, for a preface by uh, General Anders from the 1948 version and the 1965 version. This document didn't provide a, a sort of um, a conclusion, but left the, the reader uh, to, to, to decide based on the facts what they, who they thought was responsible. And it was hoped after the Nuremberg trials that this would um, you know, appeal to the conscious, uh, conscience of the world and to international justice. Now, there were several books by this one British author by the name of Louis, Louis Fitz, Fitzgibbon. He wrote in the 1970s a number of books, including this one, A Crime Without Parallel, which basically draws on the other books that had been published. And it resulted in quite a lot of public awareness in, in England and uh, letters to the editors, that kind of thing. As well as at the time, the 30 year rule kicked in, which allowed for the uh, release of previously confidential documents. So Louis Fitzgibbon followed up with another one called the Catton Cover Up. Cover -up. And that was followed up with another one called Unpitied and Unknown. And in this book, one of the things that he does besides uh, copying much of the transcripts from the Madden committee hearings, as he also transcribes many pages from the Nuremberg trials, 
which um, I haven't seen in any other book. So this was actually a very interesting contribution. And one of the last ones published before, before the 1990 Soviet admission of guilt was this book by John Luke Lauk, A-L-A-U-C-K, called Captain Killings in the Record. And what he does here in two parts, the first part is he summarizes uh, very well what was the history of the Katyn massacre. And then in the second part, he summarizes the testimony that was given at the Madden Committee. So for those researchers who are unable to access uh, the seven volumes in any library, this is a very useful text because it provides these one-page summaries of what each one of the 103 um, uh, witnesses testified before the committee, which is very, very useful. Now, the second grouping, of course, is the overview studies that were published after the Soviet and the Russian admission. And in this sector section, there's a number of books that are, are uh, you know, truly classics and very important. The first, uh, this one by George Sanford, Catton uh, and the Soviet Massacre of 1940, which was published in 2005. George Sanford was a British academic from the University of Bristol who uh, wrote, in fact, in the book that his father was Polish, uh, World War II vintage. Now, this is a complete history of uh, relevant information about Catton from before, during, and after how the matter was covered up and how it was managed by, by all the parties, including the Soviets. Now, to me, the most interesting thing when I was reading this was a chapter dealing with the details of the actual massacre and the machinery and the technology that the Soviets, how, how they carried it out. And it included also the names of, of the killers. I never thought that I would ever read this again. When I came across it, I was absolutely spellbound. And of course, one of the killers that he identifies, Vasily Blokin, was responsible for the murder, the executions of the 7,000 prisoners from the Ostashkov camp. Uh, he was responsible for killing these, these poor victims. There were 28 consecutive nights to kill 7,000 people, and the Guinness Book of Records in 2010 gave him the distinction of being the man with the world record for being the most prolific executioner ever. So that's his legacy. The next um, book, and this one is the Bible. This one was published in 2007 by three authors, Anna Chinchala, who uh, is an American academic, originally from Poland, of course, um, Wojciech Materski in, uh, from Warsaw, and Natalia Lebedeva, a Russian uh, uh, researcher, archivist from, from the Soviet of Russia. <laughs> and this book is a um, basically the definitive story, which contains three parts which begin with lengthy uh, interpretation uh, essays of narratives of what happened. 
followed by the translation of key archival um, documents, including the um, um, March 5th, 1940 um, um, execution order si signed by Stalin. So uh, this book is, is a, a, a gem and a, the Bible of, I think, Catholic researchers. But it wasn't the first time that the um, 1940 execution order had been released. The office of the Polish president, uh, Lech Walesa, that was seized from the uh, office of the Russian president, Yeltsin, the documents in two, uh, 1992 had them uh, released to the academic community, which immediately published them along with the Polish translations. And then the year later, this document called Documents of the Genocide, edited by uh, Wojciech Materski, uh, was published in 1993, which contains the wording uh, of the complete execution order. So that, that's a, a, a useful story, but it doesn't have any annotation or interpretative essay within it. The next book in this category is this book from, um, this one was written in 2010, by Eugenia Maresh in England. It's called Catherine 1940, The Documentary Evidence of the West's Betrayal. This book is a classic one um, that has done a lot. She's done a lot of research um, about uh, documents, what the, the reports that the Poles and the British had, and the which the Poles had given to the British government explaining what had happened this explains what the British know, knew, and it's, she reveals much of the documentation from the archives, which shows how this, the, the British suppressed the information and tried to cover it up while maintaining this open line verdict or this uh, you know, suspended judgment idea and so on. Then after that, there's this one, one book. This one, this I consider, um, my favorite, if you're going to just read one book about Catherine, uh, I believe my recommendation is to read this one by Paul, Alan Paul. And Alan Paul is an American um, who found out about the Catherine story while studying. And he, in 1991, published the first edition of this book. It's been a bestseller in Poland. It's been reprinted several times. This is the 2010 version, which is updated and reflects much of the information coming from the Sensala book of 2007. So this is a, a comprehensive history that I found to be refreshingly well-written. And uh, it also provides three stories of, of three families and how the massacre and the subsequent events affected them. So this is a very touching book. And of course, in this category, there's one more book, The Murderers of Catherine, which is written by a Russian journalist by the name of Vladimir Abarinov. And of course, this was published first in 19, um, wait a second, this one was published, I think it was in 1991 uh, in Russian, and then in 1993 in English. And of course, it challenges the historic uh, narrative, Soviet narrative. Now, 
In terms of political memoirs by politicians, diplomats, and generals, um, many of the memoirs from the war make references to, to the captain's story. And certainly future students should be aware of what uh, was written by people like Winston Churchill or Stanisław Mikulajczyk in his 1948 book, The Rape of Poland, or Polish ambassadors, Chechanowski to the US in his 1948 book, Defeat and Victory, or the Polish ambassador, Edward Raczynski to Britain, in his 1962 book, An Allied London. Even the Soviet ambassador, Ivan Naisky in the Naisky Diaries, makes some references to Catherine. All of these are, of course, um, relevant, and students should, should be aware of them. However, the ones that I've chosen to pick and, and address in these uh, books and are three. First, General Vladislav Anders and his book, An Army in Exile, The Story of the Second Polish Corps. This was published in 1949. I have a more, more recent edition that was published in the United States. And this book is really a, a, a classic and a gem. And I think every person of Polish background, certainly, and anybody who's interested in this part of, of Polish history should, should read it. it has several chapters, of course, and passages that deal with the um, Catherine story. And there are some passages that are recounted in other books, but this one provides, of course, the original. For example, when in 19, it was December 3rd, 1941, General Anzers with President Sikorsky and Ambassador Kot met in the Kremlin with Stalin and Molotov. And during the discussions, one of the questions was, where are the Polish officers? To which um, the story is recounted here, Stalin replied that they were released. They must have escaped. And when they, he, he, Stalin was asked, well, escaped where to? He said, Manchuria. And so this was just an example of how the Soviets, even at the highest levels, were playing a, 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 a deceitful game that bordered on occasion on uh, absurdity. And Anders also created this um, documentation center, which I believe is one of the truly under undervalued uh, or under uh, certainly not not given the, the, the kind of attention that it deserves. And hopefully, um, you know, perhaps some future students will, will undertake a study of what this documentation center actually compiled and uh, produced, because I believe it compares to a certain degree, the, an analogy, the importance of documenting things that happen as they happen with one can compare it to the Emmanuel Ringelblum, Aneg um, Sabat, efforts to record what was going on in the Warsaw Ghetto during the war. There, there the, the documents about what the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto were suffering were put into containers that were buried. Uh, and, and two of them, of the, the three, have been um, found. And of course, have revealed a tremendous trove of treasure of, of descriptions of how life was in the last period for these people were sent to Treblinka. So 
I understand that much of the documentation collected by the Anders Documentation Center is either in the Sikorsky Museum or in the Hoover Institution, but some sort of book by future students, I think would be, or historians would be very interesting about what, what, what was compiled there. Now, one of the things Anders did, of course, was ask Joseph Chapsky, a uh, junior officer, to uh, do uh, some research on his behalf uh, on searching for the, the uh, missing prisoners, and we'll get to that in a minute. Another book, very important and relevant, is that of General Bor Tadeusz Borkomorowski, who was the head of the Polish Armia Krajowa, which was the underground. And in this book, half of which at the end discusses the tragedy of the Warsaw Uprising of 1944, there is, in, in the first half, a discussion uh, uh, in several pages of what happened when Katyn was uncovered uh, by the Germans in 43. And he managed to have an observer sent to the uh, exhumations. And when the observer came back with a number of things, including um, some of the uh, diaries, Komorowski concludes by saying um, that those gave him no doubt as to who was responsible for the mass murders. Now, the next book in this, and the last one in this category, is the book by Ambassador Stanislav Kot called Conversations with the Kremlin and Dispatches from Russia. Uh, Kot didn't actually speak Russian, so every time he had meetings with, with Vyshinsky or Molotov or Stalin, he always brought a secretary who was a translator, and afterwards they took notes about what was said. So apart from the introduction that he wrote, the rest is just uh, uh, reports that were written immediately after the meetings. And some of these are, are, are phenomenal. I mean, one of the examples he gives of a meeting in, uh, before the um, arrival of Sikorsky, he met with Stalin and Molotov and raised the question again of where are the Polish officers? Stalin engaged in some theatrics this time. He went to a telephone and he called somebody and said, I've got the Polish ambassador here. He says the Polish prisoners were not released. Uh, where are they? And uh, he hung up the phone. Later, the phone rang. Stalin went back to the phone and came back and said, uh, mumbling under his breath, uh, that uh, he says they've been released. Now, Cut understood uh, that you know it was important to you know push the matter, but uh, not to uh, push in such a way that it was obvious there was going to be no no cooperation. So unfortunately, at that moment, he didn't push further because there was no no point. It was clear that there was no answer forthcoming. So uh, these are all indicative of the uh, behavior of stalling, st stalling and deceit coming from the Soviets. Now, the next category, and I, I see I'm running out of time, so I'm going to speed this up here, is memoirs of the former prisoners. So we've got Joseph Chapsky. This was originally published in Polish in 1944 called Memoirs of Starobielsk. It was subsequently published in French, and I used the French version in my annotation. However, 
Um, it is an English version is about to be published. It was supposed to be published this month. I've now been informed it's going to be coming out in March. He also wrote another one called The Inhuman Land. And this one was originally published in uh, 19, 1951 and republished by the, the New York uh, uh, NYRB Review Books. And these are the people who are also republishing the um, memora, me memories of Starobielski book of, of Chapsky. Chapsky tells a number of stories about how he contacted the head of the Gulag, um, a general in the NKVD, and searching for the missing prisoners and was given the runaround. There are several other books by survivors who were either sent to the Griazovets or to um, the Gulag. One was from the same camp as Chapsky and my grandfather, Branislav Munarski, called the 79th Survivor. And he tells also some interesting stories about his interrogation. Another is Memoirs of a Prisoner of War in Kozyalsk by uh, the Reverend Monsignor Zdzisław. Peshkovsky. Now, this was an interesting st story of a, a young officer who uh, survived, was sent to Gryazovets, and, and then became a, a priest and, and uh, uh, visited Katyn several times before uh, he eventually passed away. There's also this one for another survivor from Kozyovsk by the name The Road to Katyn by uh, Solomon Strawless. Now he was a, a medical officer and he provides a very interesting uh, perspective uh, from the Jewish perspective because of all the 15,000 who were murdered from the three camps, apparently uh, approximately a thousand were Jewish. And uh, he ended up uh, being uh, receiving a number of uh, citations, of uh, honorable citations for his performance uh, during the campaign in Italy. But the most interesting one I found is this English edition of um, Stanislav Swaniewicz's book, In the Shadow of Katyn. It was originally published in Polish in 1976, and his son Vito translated it. This was published in 2002. Svanievich's story is one of being in the camp, uh, taken one day to the Gnezdovo train station, about to be loaded onto one of the Black Raven backed out buses to the murder site and to be executed and buried in the forest. When at the last minute, he was taken out of the uh, uh, contingent. It turned out he had studied Nazi and Soviet economics before the war. And the Soviet NKVD headquarters wanted to interview him more and interrogate him more about what he knew about the Nazi economy, but also they suspected him of being a spy and wanted to find out more. So he was saved, but in the process, he managed to observe what happened to his comrades who disappeared. And he wrote about that. Now, the next section, I only have a few minutes left, so I'll try to speed things up. This is the witnesses to the exhumations. One of them was uh, Joseph Matzkevich that I already referred to. Another one is this one, Russia, Russia at War by Alexander Wirth. Now, 
this book, he was a British BBC correspondent. His uh, mother was British, his father was Russian, so he spoke Russian, and he was among the delegation of journalists that the Russians brought to see the um, Burdenko Commission uh, uh, do its uh, exhumation fraudulent work. And in this book about Russia at war, which is almost a thousand pages, he's got about six pages discussing that particular uh, trip. Now he says that afterwards, of course, the journalists couldn't really write what they thought because of the Soviet censorship. But he does conclude that the evidence was pretty thin. Now, one of the other ones that's fascinating, which wasn't mentioned in Yabrzinski's book, is One Man's War by Frank Strubman. So he was a British civilian from the Guernsey Islands who was taken by the Nazis um, you know, when they occupied the Channel Islands. And, they, and he, he was taken to a prisoner of war camp and was uh, among those who were part of this delegation to, to the exhumations. And the, Soviet, or the Nazis wanted him and the others to engage in anti-Soviet propaganda. So he's, after the war, wrote this memoir and several chapters are about this experience and what he saw. Then there are two other books dealing with this, this uh, question of the, the witnesses and what they saw. One is this book by Kristina Piokorska, English Speaking Witnesses to Katyn. This book is published in English and in Polish. I got it at the bookstore at the Polish Army Museum in Warsaw, and Kristina uh, Piokorska uh, did a phenomenal job, and job, job of trying to identify and track down what was recorded by the English-speaking witnesses who went to Katyn. In the process, she discovered that the British Foreign Office had in fact stymied three of the witnesses from appearing as um, and to give testimony to the Madden Committee. A more recent book on a similar topic is this one, Encounter with Katyn, the wartime and post-war stories of Poles who saw the Katyn site in 1943. This book is um, about the, about the author identified about 60 Poles who went to Katyn and describes the stories of what happened to a couple of dozen of them. And basically they were hounded by the, the Nazis uh, upon their return to do propaganda. And then they were hounded by the, the, the Soviets afterwards to, to shut them up. So many, a couple of them managed to escape, but otherwise they had a very difficult, difficult life. Now, before I uh, uh, am told that I'm out of time, there's a couple of more, more uh, uh, I, uh, books that I, I, I just want to absolutely mention. One is this, the issue of aerial, aerial photography. And this text, this book that was published by um, the uh, Polish uh, Geographic Institute, it's also in English and in Polish. Uh, and it's a study done by Wacław Podziemba Maliszewski, uh, who lives in the United States and who has a Facebook group for anybody who's interested in you know, getting a copy of it. It's available online and uh, this uh, Facebook group of, um, called, I think, Katyn and Stalin's Sites of Stalin's Crimes um, has the link. It's 
to where it can be obtained. But basically, the Luftwaffe conducted numerous sorties for reconnaissance purposes and aerial photography um, over the Katzen site, which were captured, of course, or received, you know, fell into the hands of the Western Allies. And what Mr. Gazemba Maliszewski did was uh, ex examine those and uh, further determine uh, you know, Russian culpability uh, and provided more photographic evidence of um, you know, what, uh, the cumulative evidence of Soviet guilt. And he also identified a location where he believes the actual executions uh, took place. And that his study and research was also elaborated on in another book by Fla Frank Fox called God's Eye, Aerial Photography in the Captain Massacre. Now, the next section I just want to touch upon very quickly is that of the families. One book that's a classic, and this one is When God Looked the Other Way, The Odyssey of War, Exile, and Redemption by uh, Wesley Adamczyk. So his father, I believe it was, a, he was at the Starobyls, was murdered like my grandfather. And years later, his mother died. Uh, they were deported to, to Kazakhstan. And as they left, uh, she succumbed to general exhaustion. And so he was left an orphan as a result of this patent uh, experience, and moved to the States. And um, eventually when the um, Piatichatsky Cemetery was opened, he was among the delegates uh, visiting. And I think that's a very moving story. Also, Teresa Kaczorowska wrote this book called Char Children, of the Katyn massacre, in which she interviewed 18, um, you know, people who, whose parents uh, disappeared in the Katyn massacre. Now, there's also one unique book written in history um, about the Katyn story by Tadeusz Witlin. This was called Timens, "Time Stopped at 6, 6:30," which is a famous line from the diary of Adam Skolski. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's the untold story of the Katyn massacre. Now, this book is based on uh, much of the testimony given at the Madden Committee. He attended the hearings, um, but there are some parts where he reconstructs um, what he envisions was or imagines was the dialogue between some of the uh, characters. And that element may be, for some people, a little bit too much reconstruction, but it's all faithful to the original uh, known documentation. And I think this would have made an excellent uh, script for, for a movie. Now, there's a number of other books that I have uh, referred to in a section on miscellaneous, um, but in the interest of time, I'll uh, I'll uh, skip over that section. Let me just conclude by saying my top recommendations are from before the Soviet admission, uh, the books by Zavodny and the crime of Katyn facts and documents. From after the Soviet admission, the book by Sanford and Sensala, uh, Lebedeva and Matersky. But like I said before, if you only have time for one book, I recommend uh, Katyn, uh, The Triumph of Truth by Alan Paul. So that's it for me. Um, 
I think I'm right at the edge of, of the limit of time. Uh, so thank you very much for your, your attention. I hope you enjoy the story. Great, thank you, Mr. Kavchik. Um, so we're about out of time, but we'll take two questions real quick. Um, the first question, what happened to the men the officers commanded? Where did they go after they were captured? What, what happened to? What happened to the men the officers commanded? Where did they go after they were oh. captured? Okay, my understanding is that of the 250,000 that were um, captured, the rank and file were, um, they went through, um, uh, some were released, some were in prison, and uh, yeah, uh, that, that's all I'm, I, I, generally speaking, can say I don't have specific numbers about how many were released to go home or, or how many were kept. Um, but uh, yeah, generally speaking, the, the lower uh, ranking, um, you know, privates and recruits and so on, my understanding is that many of them were released and, and sent, sent, back, sent home. Great. Uh, and the last question, um... Uh, has this impacted Russian-Polish relations to this day? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, <laughs> you know. In, in a nutshell, the thing is that you know, for fifty years, the Soviets pursued a lie, and it's a terrible lie. And after that, although there was a statement of initial, you know, uh, uh, I, I can't remember the exact word, but it's something like a regret and, you know, blaming it on Stalinism. Uh, there was no official um, apology, followed by, as in the case of the Holocaust, for example, um, you know, uh, some justice in the form of prosecution of the responsible or even just symbolic mm -hmm. compensation. There's no there's, you know, in one of the books, unfortunately, I didn't have time to get to, but its basic theme was precisely this, that there's, there's still something, the Soviets haven't yet fully released all the information regarding a cotton that was accumulated in their investigations. Uh, this matter was the subject of the Human Rights uh, Tribunal complaint to uh, the international, uh, the, the EU Human Rights Tribunal in the... Uh, 2012 case of Yanovets, and um, yeah, it's it's uh, you know it, 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 it's still a, in a sense a festering wound that does not um, you know completely heal in part because the Soviets haven't or the Russians today haven't been 100% forthcoming with the information that they have. We have one more question that I'm gonna ask real quick. Um, what topics do you think need to be further addressed in the Katyn lecture? Yeah, or that, Sorry about that. that that's a, a very interesting uh, question. You know, I already mentioned, um, you know, my, my, my thinking that, you know, this, this uh, issue of the documentation center and what it accumulated and what could, it, it 
itself could, could, could tell us something that I think some historians sh should discuss. But in terms of the Katyn um, massacre it, it itself, I think that the main concern of many archivists and historians is that there are still, you know, there was a brief period of time when the Russian archives were opened up and digging the relevant information out uh, was a challenge. But before everybody who was interested could satisfy themselves that they had exhausted all of the avenues of research, I'm under the impression that the archives were closed. And certainly under the current uh, administration in the Kremlin, one gets the impression that uh, digging up such information is not uh, something of, 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 of interest. And so those are, um, you know, I think the, the, the still outstanding uh, points that should at some point in history and in the future be divulged. Well, it looks like we're out of time. Um, I would like to thank Mr. Kavchuk for joining us this evening and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you everyone. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thank Mr. you.